Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Gathering Ground, a podcast where with each new episode, a special guest and I explore what it looks like to thrive in the nonprofit landscape. I'm Mary Morton. I'm president of Morton Group, LLC. We're a national consulting group that operates in Chicago and works with clients from coast to coast. And you can find out more about our work at mortongroup.com. So this time on Gathering Ground, we're pleased to be bringing back one of our very first episodes, one of our very first guests, I should say. It's it's hard to believe it's been over two years, Sean. Uh, I know we saw each other um, last year for the Ready Symposium, which also seems like a really long time ago. Uh, But we are so excited to welcome back the Building Movement Project co-director, Sean Thomas Breitfeld. Hi, Sean. Hi, thanks so much for having me back. Absolutely. When you were here the last time on Gathering Ground, you told us about the data that had just been released in the 2016 reports, Race to Lead, Confronting the Nonprofit Racial Leadership Gap. And at that time, that report surveyed over 5,000 paid staff in the nonprofit sector. And it showed that people of color in the sector were similarly qualified as white respondents and had more interest than white peers in becoming a nonprofit leader. So now Sean is back with us again to talk about the newest report, from Building Movement Project, which is the 2020 Race to Lead Revisited, Obstacles and Opportunities in Addressing the Nonprofit Racial Leadership Gap. This report delves back into the nonprofit sector and discusses how things have changed for people of color in nonprofit, if they've changed at all. And before we get to some of that, I would be remiss if I did not ask you how you're doing, Sean, and now that the world is opening up again, um, what are some things that you can reflect on in these last 15, 16 months or so that, that uh, you know, some of the experiences you've had and, and how did you make it through? Well, uh, yeah, it has been an intense year and a half. Um, it just so happens that my birthday was right before everything shut down. Uh, shut down. Oh, wow. And so <laughs> my husband- Is that Pisces? I am a Pisces, okay. yes. Um, my husband had planned like a dinner with friends on the 12th and we went to then see a Broadway show. Oh. It was actually the last night that Broadway was open. Open, wow. What did you see? I not have known that. What did you- uh, we saw Company, the oh. new version of Company yeah, where nice. um, the lead is played by a woman and they did some gender swapping and things like that. Um, so yeah, it, it has been uh, interesting and intense. Um, I would say, you know, I have been very aware of the level of comfort uh, and privilege that I have been able to experience during the past uh, year and a half. Um, You know, my husband works in the restaurant industry. So once the restaurants reopened, he was back to work, back to like coming, you know, taking the train, you know, like relying on public transit, all of that. Um, And, you know, so I think that the ability to work from home uh, is not something that everyone in my life has had, (laughs) Uh, and which has made me, I think, particularly aware of some of the benefits and privileges of being in the sort of intermediary type organization that's doing research, mm-hmm. um, you know, as an organization that is con- both connected to and supportive of groups that do organizing on the ground, 
as well as providing direct services to communities. Um, you know, the relationship that we have with partners on the ground has also made me very aware of the privilege of the sort of the way that we're situated in the sector and how difficult, um, how much more difficult the last year and a half has been for grassroots organizers, for social workers and caseworkers. And it's not just been about the, you know, I think the awareness of the being sort of frontline workers, but it's also been about the suffering that people have seen in their communities. And so it's just been very, it's been very complicated <laughs> uh, over the last year and a half. Absolutely. And, and did you pick up any new practices that you just thought, okay, this is gonna be something that I'm trying now, I'm gonna stick with it maybe after, uh, you know, we're not sheltering in place. Any, yeah, anything that helped you just through the, you know, through this time? I would love to say yes. The reality is I gained 30 pounds. I have been like cooking and like sitting at home much more than I ever yeah, was before. We are, yeah. And, you know, it's had some impacts <laughs> um, that are maybe not the best. I think the other interesting thing is like, I am an introvert and have, you know, never been as aware of like the comfort being introverted <laughs> as when I'm not, going to conferences and like having Receptions. to do the yeah. presenting and things like that. So it's just, yeah, it's been yeah very unsettling. I need to, I need to get back into like my performative extroversion that yeah. I used to be good at. I, I feel like I've lost a little bit of skill there. Well, you know, it's so true, right? I mean, I am not, I mean, I know people think this is like a total joke when I say this, but I'm not actually the most extra, extroverted person either, but I do it because I have to do it, right? It comes with the territory, so you just do it. And um, I have to say, I haven't missed some of the receptions. I haven't missed some of the travel. We were traveling a lot and we already have travel now booked for the fall. Um, and we had someone ask us about uh, possibly doing a session in person, a training session which I thought it would certainly be next year before anybody <laughs> raised that. Um, however, that means we've really got to look at guidelines around, you know, what's going to make the, you know, what's going to be comfortable for the facilitators and trainers in terms of being in, in, in spaces. And um, it's, so COVID reentry is also, you know, going to be Absolutely. very, it's going to be a very, I think different than what we might've imagined. So, well, thank you for checking in. Cause I just like to know sort of what your world's been like. Um, you know, we've been working virtually since 2017, more or less, uh, because we were doing so much traveling. So it was a slightly uh, less difficult pivot for us to make all of our trainings virtual. However, certainly people have missed seeing each other. I think that's, uh, and uh, we just had an opportunity where everyone got together, you know, everybody's vaccinated and we didn't have to have masks and we had a retreat and that was lovely. Um, and so now we're, you know, getting mired uh, back into it and trying, I would say one thing that we did here is we usually do summer hours um, at one o'clock on, on Fridays. And uh, as you know, and I'm sure you experienced this as well, people were working really hard. In fact, I would say people were working harder while we were sheltering in place. Um, I know I certainly felt that way. So um, we've just made the decision uh, to close Fridays at one period forever. So even if you have some things you have to get done, being able to put on your out of office sign and really manage expectations about your email, I don't know about for you, that is huge. 
right? If people think, oh, they've already left for the day, they're not going to hear from them until Monday or whatever. So anyway, that's that's one thing that we have done and it will stick. We're not going to we're not going to go back on that. So that's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, well, it, it's going to be, you know, it'll take some getting used to. Um, and the summer is the best time to do it because a lot of people have summer hours. However, this will be the way it is. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, so let's talk about the report. Um, tell us a little bit about the frame of this report and how it differs in terms of the number of folks or cities that you actually um, had data collection coming in from. Sure, so I'd say that it's uh, the survey in 2019 was actually very similar to the survey in 2016 in terms of the way we were collecting information. Uh, it was still a convenient sample. Uh, we did have more people, as you said, a thousand people more uh, in 2019 compared to 2016. So we were over 5,000 total mm -hmm. respondents in 2019 compared to over 4,000 total mm -hmm. respondents in 2016. And, you know, I think that um, what shifted was that we added some new questions uh, in yeah. part because we we're trying to test out some concepts right. that we wanted to understand Right. That would help us in building a race equity assessment that we've been working on. For I was going to ask you about that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the big shift in terms of the content of the survey. Right. right. But, you know, as the report outlines, there are a lot of ways in which the findings in 2019 were very similar to 2016. And we know that because we asked so many of the same questions. questions. Right. Right. Uh, and so that brings us to the first finding that largely... It was the same story when it comes to opportunity, advancement, the barriers that people of color were reporting, um, which you know I think is somewhat disappointing. Right, and and let me just ask you this: we had we had we had an opportunity to um, do a, a, a similar sort of uh, data collection that we did in 2011, 2012, and then a foundation came back. Um, for the LGBT community fund at the Chicago Community Trust to do it again. Um, why did you want to do it again now? Why did you decide not to wait longer or to do it sooner? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think we're uh, we're thinking we were thinking that a three year cycle is right. <laughs> so like we will be resurveying in 2022. Um, and part of the reason for collecting data again three years after was, you know, it's like you collect the data, there's a period of time of just like data cleaning and analysis yeah. mm -hmm. that takes more than you think. <laughs> and oh, then there's right. the period of like actually report writing and then like using the reports that have been written to then like put out to the sector, these are things we should be paying attention to, right? And so that arc, I think, feels like a three-year arc. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's why resurveying and uh, every three years it became the strategy. So mm -hmm. we will be doing another survey in 2022. Okay. And did you find it any easier to collect data? Or was it, I mean, it, it's a very active, and I don't know if folks have not done this before, you really have to work to get people to respond to surveys and you have to remind them and remind them again because you're, you know, this is your survey, it's not their survey. And while it will help the field, people have many different things going on. And so our experience is that we have to provide different ways for people to respond. What, what was your experience around that? 
I think that's absolutely true. Um, I think there are some benefits to surveying at the national level, uh, doing it as a snowball sample where, you know, we have a massive list right. of people who have taken the survey in the past. We have significant social media reach. And I think what happens is, you know, people take the survey, you know, anyone working for a nonprofit organization is eligible to participate. It just so happens that the people who take the 30 to 45 minutes to actually fill out the survey are people who are working full time in organizations. Uh, you know, I think, and I think that they are then also passing the survey on to peers uh, because I think there are thought provoking questions. Um, I think that people also have a sense that this is an opportunity to challenge the sector um, to step up. And I also think that we now have enough visibility from the various, can't even tell you how many race to leave reports we have put out now. Um, but I think that there's enough visibility that I think people want to have their voice heard because they know that the reports are going to be impactful, provocative. Uh, and, you know, our, our hope is that the reports are sparking dialogue and conversation and change in organizations and in the sector. And well, I think people want to be a part of that. I, I, I agree. And um, I think that, um, I know I've been doing some work with a couple of national organizations and I was, you know, I was nudging them along to use references to this data, which when I saw the final product, there was, you know, the, the references to the data were, were being used because I still believe that, um, well, as you, you know this as well as I do, that when we're talking about the racial leadership uh, gap in nonprofits, I think there are many folks who don't think that that's true or that the narrative, and I think this is so important that you, you pulled this out as a pullout in, in the summary, the findings point to a new narrative to increase the number of people of color leaders the nonprofit sector needs to address the practices and biases of those governing nonprofit organizations. Rather than focus on the perceived deficits of potential leaders of color, the sector should concentrate on educating nonprofit decision makers on the issues of race equity and implicit bias accompanied by changes in action leading to measurable results. So that many people still think there's something wrong, I put that in quotes, with the folks that are applying, or they, you know, there's just, they're not gonna be a good fit. I'm really trying to think of another word for fit because as you know, that is often a way that people of color in particular are pulled out of searches. They're not gonna fit with the, with, you know, uh, they just don't have good chemistry with folks. And, and certainly we've had experiences where we've worked with organizations where we're doing an executive search for them and we're working with them on their, their DEI work. And, we can sort of see it play out in real life where someone will say, literally, I'm concerned about this per person's communication style. And I've had an opportunity then to talk to the CEO and say, here's what I'm seeing. And this is how you can do a little course correction right now in the moment. And those are those moments. I mean, they're, they're teachable moments and you don't often have a chance to impact them when they're happening. But I see this a lot in the executive uh, search field. I've actually, Sean, this may surprise you. I've actually had another recruiter say to me, we were talking about, I don't know, particular search. And the recruiter said, uh, I, I think I asked, well, did you have a large number of people of color? 
And they said, well, you know, we have our um, applicants fill out a, 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 uh, an application that I don't see the demographics. So when I start looking at resumes that separated, this is what she then said. However, I can usually tell by their address or their name. Did you? Yes, Sean is right now putting his hand up to his face and shaking his head. A recruiter literally said that to me. Okay, to me, they said that. And I thought, well, here lies, here lies the other part of the problem. So we have, if we have a recruiter that's feeding into that kind of, um, you know, feeding into that dynamic, and then you're working with an organization that is, you know, may tend to sort of follow that train of thought or, or just the fact that you would say that and not understand, you know, you talk a lot about implicit bias. It was mind boggling. I mean, did you hear any story? I mean, I don't know if you heard stories like that. Uh, I was, I was pretty surprised yeah. as I said that someone would say this to me, um, a black woman, you know, who leads a search firm, a part of our work is, you know, conducting searches. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's one of those things where it sort of depends how they were saying it or how they were thinking about it, right? Because it does, it sounds to me like it was not an asset for them to recognize that someone was a person of color. That's exactly right. Culture, That's how right? I took it, Sean. Right. And so that's the way I interpreted it. That's yeah. the way you interpreted it. Yes. There could be ways in which it is an asset, right? Absolutely. And, Absolutely. you know, where it's like someone has indicated in their resume or cover letter That's that right. they have a particular lived experience exactly right. that will add value for the organization. That would be great. And that's the organization exactly right. should recognize that as an asset, you know? Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's sort of where we're struggling as a, as a sector. I think that um, it has so much to do with expectations in terms of like the people who hold the power around hiring, firing, et cetera. Like what is it that they're looking for as qualifications? What are they looking for as readiness? What are they looking for as expertise? Because, you know, our data indicates that people of color are just as educated, right? Like they have the same level of education generally, but if a company or not a company, if a nonprofit organization is looking for people to have the degrees from a limited set of schools, right, that then leads to, you know, them ruling out people who may have gone to HBCU, you know, whereas like from a lot of other organizations, like Howard is as valued as Harvard, right? Mm -hmm. And I just think it's one of those things where I think too many organizations have like these very narrow views of what kind of uh, credentials or experience is going to be valued. We hear this all the time. So did a search last fall for uh, a statewide organization um, where we started to talk about the opportunity profile and the question came up about whether or not the candidate, whether or not you, what would you have put down for, for under qualifications for education? And this is a place where we really try to um, get folks to think about, you say you're committed to equity, here's one way you can really show that. Um, is it necessary for this person to have a college degree? And, um, you know, they had a little conversation about it. I'm happy to say, without a very protracted amount of time spent on it, they decided education was not important. Therefore, they just took it out. 
What a concept. It was not preferred. It was not, there was no language about education. As one of the members of the committee said, many of you know um, several folks right now who are running large nonprofits and they don't have a college degree. And I know if I said their names, you know them, you work with them. Why do we even need to address this in this way? And people came to the agreement that they 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 didn't. Now we can we were you know working with and and have worked with other um, organizations where they have clearly indicated that while it's not important, they're going to get they're going to give some um, points, if you will, to someone who does not only have a college degree, but if they have a, a graduate degree. And so I had to raise you know implicit bias because that's what you're telling me right there will happen if you see someone with that particular degree. And so I think it's, you know, all kinds of things come out when you're doing um, uh, an executive search or any kind of search. And it really is telling about the organization in terms of what is most important. And unfortunately, in many cases, they have not had those conversations before they're working with an external consultant. So in addition to, you know, getting the opportunity profile, we are also then having these conversations that point to some additional work uh, that needs to happen in the organization. Yeah, and I think unfortunately, um, your many of your peers who are helping with recruitment, placement, et cetera, are not willing to or equipped to challenge bias in their client organizations the way yeah. you are. Yeah, yeah, we, I just feel like we, I, I feel like we have to do it. And I would say, in terms of something that is, that, you know, the death of um, the murder of George Floyd and everything that has ensued since then has meant that we're pushing back in ways that we, in, in a different kind of way, um, because we feel like that's part of our work. Like we couldn't do this work, you know, and sort of be hopeful that change is possible if one, we didn't see it. And two, if we weren't doing everything we thought was important. Um, so when you look at the, at the survey, what were you, now you said the narrative is very similar. I appreciate some of the, the lists that you have here are, you know, you, you provided in the summary around some really basic components of what you've learned. So one of them is not about differences in background or qualifications. And this is something you've referenced that people of color and white respondents have similar backgrounds. So it's not about that. And you heard that very clearly. Yep, similar backgrounds. People of color actually have, you know, report higher aspiration to the leaders of organizations. Um, unfortunately, though, people of color also are more likely to report that their race has negatively impacted their advancement in the nonprofit sector. And I think what we were a little surprised by was that the, the share, the percentage of people of color who reported that had increased between 2016 and 2019. So in 2016, it was a third of people of color who said that their race had had a negative impact and the much larger share of people of color said race had had not had had no impact, right? Um, and what shifted between 2016 and 2019 was that the proportion of people who said race had had no impact decreased dramatically mm -hmm. and those, and that number shifted towards negative impact. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, it's hard to know what to make of that, right? Like, again, the survey was collected in 2019 before the national uh, reckoning that the murder of George Floyd 
right. really caused in our right. country. Um, but I do think that there had been more explicit and direct conversations about racial bias in the nonprofit sector between 2016 and 2019. It became a bigger topic at conferences. Uh, there have been an increasing number of reports and surveys similar to ours, new tools were developed. I, I, and I think part of what then happened, this is a hunch, I don't have data to back it up, but I think that people had a new way of considering what their experiences had been. And rather than sort of buying into the dominant view that we live in a colorblind society, I think people had a new, people of color had a new way of interpreting their experience. And they recognized that things that they may have thought were neutral actually had been negative. And I also think that it's worth acknowledging and understanding that the share of white respondents to our survey who recognized their white privilege in their advancement had also increased, right? So I think it's a consciousness shift that our data is capturing. And how much of that, and I don't, I don't think there was a question about this, but how much of that do you think is connected to the political landscape that started? Because that is when we saw a major uptick in our work for our Equity Institute, and then another major uptick after George Floyd was murdered. So what do you think about the 2016 election and its impact? Yeah, it's a great point. The, the survey was done early in 2016, months before okay. the, the election. election. Okay. Um, and I do think that uh, the 2016 election did raise these issues in ways that I think people had not been grappling with them before. Um, and so yeah, I, I think that that probably is a factor that there has been a growing dialogue and conversation about the centrality of race as a determining factor in the prospects and chances of people in this country. And so it only continued. So by the time you went back to folks in 2019, they were ready to talk about it and, and we're seeing it and it was being raised in, in ways that it probably wasn't before. I, I just think there's been a, you know, gradual building momentum, right? That yes. got us to this racial reckoning. Um, and also we were all, um, or not all of us, but many of us were at home and saw it literally unfold on television when George Floyd was murdered. And, and yeah. I think that fed into it as well. Um, well, let's keep, let, let's keep going with a couple of these other points that you make. It is not about skills and preparation. You've, we talked about aspirations. We've taught, talked about background and qualifications. It is also not about skills and preparation. Talk a little bit about that. Well, we were curious about what kind of training and supports people had received. Um, and we just weren't seeing dramatic differences on the basis of whether people self-identified as people of color or as white. Um, so, you know, it's not to say that training is not useful. I think it absolutely is. And I think that there needs to continue to be investment in training and supports. Uh, particularly for uh, people of color who have the interest and aspiration to move up into leadership roles in the sector. Um, so I don't want to suggest that it's not important. I, I do think it is. I just think that training is not a defining factor that can help explain things. Like we're not seeing dramatic differences in access to types of training. I think it is though interesting that you know, I think some of the elements of training and support, like for instance, coaching, mm -hmm. 
you know, why is it that people of color are looking to coaching as a support more often? Um, you know, is that a reflection of the added burden that they are experiencing in organizations? Or is it about, you know, just wanting to have additional support uh, as they try to advance? That is a question that, you know, there's anecdotal, like there are things that I've heard from people, but mm -hmm. I don't think our data is uh, going to conclusively tell us that. Right. But I do think that there's there's a lot of supports that could be invested in uh, in the sector to uh, help people advance. Absolutely. And we, when we do a, an executive level position, um, we are always putting in something about coaching, um, whether they're a first time leader at that level or not. I, it just seems like that's something we want to offer. And it doesn't matter, you know, the race of the, uh, of the new, of the place candidate. We are always talking about coaching. I know folks who have, you know, been doing this work for 25 years, they've had a coach for all 25 years. So um, I, I think that's a really important piece as well. So it is. Sorry, one other thing on coaching, though, I would also add that I think part of the question about coaching is who are the coaches, right? Like, how could we think about coaching as a way that we continue to gain value and insight from leaders in the field who may be older and have been leading organizations uh, and want to invest in support the, you know, the sort of next generation of nonprofit leaders? Um, you know, I think we need to be thinking about like off ramps to existing leaders so that they have ways to continue contributing to the sector and investing in uh, leadership collectively. Uh, and I just think that, that there's not that kind of investment uh, from the perspective of funders in creating opportunities for people, particularly leaders of color who, you know, may not have been well running well-resourced organizations and are likely to need to work past what a normal retirement age might be. Um, but may not want to actually still be running an organization. Like coaching and that kind of consulting and mentoring could be a great way for people to, uh, you know, continue to invest in the sector uh, without all of the pressures that may be wearing them down around running an organization. That is a great idea, Sean. And, um, you know, for some reason, I feel like I just had lunch with someone of course, I've only had lunch with a couple of folks, uh, so I should be able to um, to figure out who that was. Who talked about something similar? How do how how does someone pass on what they've learned? Um, and and certainly understanding that folks are not coming out of college, which with some very basic skills that people think are really important to work life. So I, I had someone in a workshop say to me, "I have a number of uh, folks who just hired their recent college graduates and." They can't seem to get to the office on time, and I, I said, what, what, what does that mean? I mean, is there, you know, is there a childcare issue? Is there, what? No, they just come in at different times. So we were thinking about changing the time we started, and and I, I was like, I, I didn't say this, but I was like, are you joking? Uh, because there's some other ways to address that, and part of this is about managing expectations and. And why would you automatically change your environment? Now, I think environment should should be supportive and inclusive. However, this seemed like a, a situation where people just didn't know how to show up at work because no one's ever shown them how to show up at work. They haven't done that. Um, I worked, you know, I had a group of folks working with me, 
nine or 10 years ago. And I remember the first time I said to them, um, we, we're gonna have to do a hard copy letter and we're gonna need to put a couple of uh, cop, uh, CCs on it. And they looked at me as though I was speaking several different foreign languages because the only time they've ever CC'd anyone is in an email. So the idea of actually putting a CC on a letter was completely unknown to them. Um, so there are many things that people just need to be brought along on, and that can be part of the onboarding process. That's not that's not a reason why someone shouldn't have a you know a, a position. Um, so this idea about it being an uneven playing field. Talk a little bit about that piece um, with regard to um, leaders of color being feeling like they're prepared to take on the role. Well, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of what we saw in terms of the comparison between 2016 and 2019, you know, I think that the, the general sort of storyline from the original Race to Lead report was still largely true, um, that people of color have, you know, report less support in terms of like having had role models less support in terms of having had people who can help them make connections to move up a ladder, you know, or if they're getting that support, it's from outside of the organization that they currently work for, right? So like, you know, whereas white respondents were more likely to say that they had mentors in their organization. And that really, I think, makes a big difference in terms of, you know, whether you can imagine a future for yourself in an organization, or if you're gonna to have to jump to a different organization in the sector, or if you'd even know where to go um, if you don't have that kind of um, support or relationship. And so, you know, there, there were these really great stories because we capture all these write-in responses. So there are these really great stories shared from people of color about how phenomenal or how important their mentorship has been uh, from other you know, people of color. I just think it's unfortunately not common enough, um, particularly for people of color who are working in majority white organizations to be able to get that kind of um, support for all the reasons of like bias in terms of who who mentors decide to mentor and invest in. Exactly, exactly, absolutely. So uh, one other point I wanna make sure I raise, Sean, is this idea and the frustration of representing as somebody who has been the first or been the only um, it is difficult to sometimes get people to understand that we are not as Black people monolithic. Uh, we have all of these different experiences and it is, um, it's an added burden in many ways to have to then think whatever you do is going to be representative of the entire race. Yeah, and you know, I think that what really came through in the data we collected in 2019 was how that pressure uh, is really important in terms of the context of the organization that people are working in, right? So when people are working for majority white organizations or, you know, we in the report termed white run organizations, um, the pressures around tokenism are just much more felt uh, because it's much more the day-to-day -day experience. And I think what was interesting and this is again something that comes out through the write-in responses is the constant calcula calculating that people are doing. Like, how are how am I going to show up in this meeting 
in this moment when I am the only or one of only a few in a circle or in an organization uh, that is mostly white um, and knowing how to be strategic, right? Like there's a strategic interest in standing up for the community that you represent. Um, and there's also a strategic need to stay employed, sometimes not being the advocate, right? Because I think that, and there's a danger that so many people uh, are feeling about being labeled as difficult or angry or the activist. Uh, and it would be great if organizations weren't at, weren't so afraid of people being activists, but I just think that it is a challenge uh, that people are constantly navigating around how to advocate for the community, advocate for yourself, advocate for peers of the same racial ethnic background in these organizations where that's not always valued. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I totally agree with that. And I think um, that it is, um, it's difficult when, once you have that label in an organization that, you know, it, it's gonna follow you wherever you go. And it will absolutely, it, it can have that, um, that impact of, of not supporting you as you try to advance. So this last one, it's not personal, it is the system. Let's talk about that. Well, yeah, I mean, it, uh, these issues are systemic. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think part of what we really wanted to understand with the 2019 data, and, and this is part of why we changed the structure of some of the questions, was we really wanted to understand um, not just who's leading the organization, but who holds power in organizations. And so one of the things that we did was we tried to unpack for respondents, like what's the composition of your organization's board? What's the composition of the leadership team of your organization? And I don't think this will be surprising, but the majority of our respondents, regardless of race, worked for organizations that were you know, majority white in terms of the composition of the board and senior leadership team. Um, and then a small percentage, only 14% of all of the respondents work for organizations where more than half of the leadership and more than half of the board were people of color. Um, but what our data showed was that the experience in organizations varied a lot depending on the composition of who holds power. Um, and I just think that really speaks to the systemic issues. Um, and I think it speaks also to the need to diversify organizations um, because organizations that were more diverse were the kinds of organizations where both respondents of color and white respondents were having better experiences. And we see that um, often um, in our own work. Uh, I think you may know that we, we just, um, we announced our, the recipient of our FIRE grant, the Forging Innovations and Racial Equity Grant. And Sean, this will be the first time in maybe ever that we will be working with, and, and we intentionally looked for smaller nonprofits, groups that wouldn't generally have access to maybe our services. Um, this will be the first time though that we've worked with a nonprofit around racial equity, access, diversity and inclusion where the organization is run by a person of color, never. And so that speaks to one, what this data says, um, as well as there's sometimes, I think this, this uh, thought that, well, we, we have a person of color in leadership, we're good. We don't need to do any of this other work. 
not taking into account that we all have biases. We, we deal with internalized racism. And, and my lived experience as a you know, black woman, as a you know, um, lesbian may not really be the same as yours and that's okay. How do we make room for that? Because that's the inclusion part that people seem to not really understand, right? How do we include everyone? So the idea of, for instance, the example I often use is pronouns. And people will say, well, we don't have anybody who is, I, so how do you know that? How do you know that? And it's not about doing it just when the person's in the room. It's doing it so that anyone who's coming into the room feels welcome and that you're creating this, this understanding in your organization that we will always do this. It is not just doing it, you know, sort of when it's convenient and, and that you always use your pronouns. Um, it's, it's one of those things where um, it, it does, of course, become performative. And um, that's something that we really want to, we, I mean, we try to push back on that when we're doing this racial equity work. But yeah, it'll be the first time, which we're really excited about. We're so excited to work with the Black-led organization. It's, um, we're really looking forward to it. So um, I, I appreciate too, that you always end with some call to action. You know, it's great to have the report. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to change this narrative? And so one of the first things you talk about is, you know, how do we rewrite the story? How do we change the narrative? And um, how do we place some of the onus on those who are making decisions, um, those who have the power in the organization? And then your second point here is to start with bold leadership. Can you speak a little bit about that one with regard to what nonprofit leaders can do? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is the report that I'm sort of, that we're working on now is like to look at what are we hearing from executive directors specifically. And, you know, the last time we talked for the conference, you know, the panel, one of the things that came up, you know, is myself and women of color who were leading organizations and, you know, they were, Several, you know, they were talking about some of the challenges of being the woman of color at the top of the organizational hierarchy. Um, and I think one of the important things for people who are white leaders of organizations to be thinking about in terms of their own leadership responsibility is what kind of change can they make in their organization now so that it would be welcoming of and able to support the leadership of someone who is not white, <laughs> right? Like it's better for that groundwork to be laid by the white leader before they exit <laughs> so that the person of color isn't inheriting a lot of, I don't know what else, how else to just put it, but like messy situation. <laughs> I was thinking messiness, yes, absolutely. You know? um, right. It, right. I think that that's a really important leadership role and leadership competency for white leaders to be investing in building now in their organizations to, you know, make their organizations ready and willing to embrace and support the leadership of someone who may not look exactly like them. That's exactly right. They can lay that groundwork. They can help with that roadmap. Um, so many times, you know, certainly a number of years ago, I would see a person of color um, then move into a leadership role when the organization was in the worst possible place it could be, right? And so there, so that leader is not being set up for success, and um, will then be seen as, oh well, you know, we had a person of color come in, and then the organization closed. When that organization was going to close, no matter who was leading it, yeah. And but, but no one knows that. Yeah. No one knows that story. Yeah, it's the glass cliff. It's a classic. Yeah. 
classic problem, uh, you know, in the corporate literature, as well as, you know, just more generally, like that organizations are ready for different kinds of leaders at the point that they're most, their situation is most precarious. Yes, most dire, absolutely. So a few other things we wanna mention because we're gonna take a break and then come back with our listener questions are to address systems barriers, because as you say, this is systemic. And so um, implement, implement race conscious organizational practices, right? So in, with regard to your hiring and promotion policies, you need to think about implicit bias. You also talk about uh, integrating race and race equity into leadership programs. Um, that I think is extraordinarily important. Did you see a lot of references to that in the write-ins or why did you add this in as a call to action? Well, I do think that since the original Race to Lead survey, that this is something that has actually been happening. I think there have been more in investments in, um, you know, peer supportive communities of leaders of color or aspiring leaders of color. And, you know, it's something that is just at this point still anecdotal, but I have enough conversations yeah. and I have enough examples of, you know, these sort of cohorts that are mm -hmm. supported by, a, you know, skilled either former executive director or other kind of capacity builder that are building both connection between people in the sector and also developing skills. And I think both things are really important because I think people need a squad to go back to when they face some of the problems that they're likely to encounter. Like when you hit that wall of, you know, racial bias, it's useful to have someone to go back to to confirm that you're not crazy <laughs> and yeah. also help you strategize around how to get over, get around the barrier that you're experiencing. And it's just, I think, easier for that to happen with other people of color in the sector. I would agree with that. I'm, I'm seeing a lot more cohorts. We're leading some of them as well. And so I, I agree that it is happening and it has only increased in the, in the particularly in the last year, I would say. Um, so this other idea about change, philanthropic practices, um, foundations and other funding sources should examine racial disparities and who receives funding and how much seems really simple. However, we know what we know now in terms of how foundations actually can operate uh, post COVID and yeah. how we thought they could operate before or how they said they needed to operate. It's like, you can't actually get money out on the street much faster. You actually don't need to ask for these reports yeah. and, how, and that we should not go back to that, right? That that is not what we return to because this idea of going back to normal, I keep saying to people, please stop saying that. Normal was not that great for many people. And there's some things that really absolutely needed to change. And it is only because of COVID did they change. So I'm, are you getting any sense that philanthropy is really going to continue with some of these practices? I've been asking lots of people this. I asked Vu a couple of weeks ago when I talked to him, Vule, and, and just what, what is your thought about that? <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of, I'm not sure. You know, yeah. there is yeah. a part of me that is hopeful. Uh, and there's also a part of me that's very skeptical. Yeah. Um, in part, because I think we're seeing both things happen, right? So some foundations that had relaxed uh, during COVID and were sort of moving towards uh, having calls with grantees instead of requiring 
uh, like a written report that takes 10 hours to do. Yes. I think we did see that taken up. Uh, and I think we're also seeing some funders go back to a higher level of scrutiny. And you know, I think it's partially this power, power differences inside of foundations, right? So I think many program officers would like to be more responsive to their grantees and would like to be more relational and would like to be more trust-based uh, in the way that they engage with grantees and partners on the ground. And I think that they're navigating real some complicated uh, organizational systems and hierarchies that are pushing for more structure again, uh, mm -hmm. more worry about like what kind of scrutiny there needs to be to ensure that the foundation is covered legally, you know? And I just think yeah, it's, uh, I, I think we should be putting pressure on our program officers. And I think we also have to understand that many of them are caught Absolutely. in a little bit of a, between a rock and a hard place. And that the people with the power to actually change policy are most often not the program officers that we have contact with. That's right. It's, um, it's their boards in many yeah. cases. And so that's, yeah, that's actually the real deal. Well, I, I also just want to give a shout out here with regard to um, tools that'll be helpful for people in Turkey talking to their, um, their um, funders. You know, look at some of the tools on fundthepeople.org, uh, the talent justice piece. Um, that's really important in terms of how you even formulate some of your arguments um, that will help you get your foundation to think about investing in your staff. Uh, it's really important. There's a reason why that is the largest line item in any nonprofit's budget. However, we, I think, don't often, don't often think about it in those terms. And so the last two pieces are to make sure that you are measuring results, right? That's really important. Data matters, as you know, and sometimes the only way we can get move the needle is to prove it with data. Um, so you want to be able to track the investments that you're making. And I would just say, um, not but, but and, it's also important to acknowledge that everything that is important cannot be measured. And that the culture piece, right? So it's both cultural and it's systemic. And um, if you look at it, look at it in that holistic manner, you will likely be able to move the needle on some of these really critical issues. I mean, if we don't figure out how to address this, um, it really speaks to the future of nonprofits and, and, and what the makeup of the staff will be and the continued disconnect between, uh, in many cases, who's being served and who's actually providing the services. I completely agree. So anything you would wanna say in closing about the, this recent data set um, that people should keep in mind and, and tell people how they can access this data? Sure. Um, so. The one additional thing that I would just lift up from the 2019 survey was that we did explore um, views and experiences of DEI initiatives because we recognized that between 2016 and 2019, lots of organizations had started a DEI effort or training or things like that. So three quarters of respondents said their organization was doing something which I do think is good. Um, I think that when we looked at the training question, I think what stood out was that um, when respondents reported that their organization had done training on four or more topics, they were much more likely to say that training had a positive impact. And I just think that speaks to the need for organizations to not think of training as a one-time check off the box. Yeah. 
That was like such a deep frustration that we heard in the focus groups, um, particularly young people of color feeling like their organizations were just doing DEI as a checkbox and they knew it wasn't making a difference. They knew it was basically a sort of legalistic covering your, you know what, um, strategy. And I just think people are uh, looking for and really seeking a deeper level of engagement on these issues in their workplace. And I think that particularly young people will select to opt in or opt out of organizations depending on whether they can see the commitment to DEI or equity that is expressed in the organization's mission actually aligned with the operating principles of the organization. And I do think that part of the talent challenge that organizations face may be addressed by actually living into their commitment to equity. Well, that is absolutely the case. And what we know from our work is that, yes, younger folks are not, not down for this at all, not for this lip service. They're, they want to see it act in action. And, you know, you know of the gazillion statements that came out when uh, George Floyd was uh, murdered. And I, there was some group recently that did a little bit of data collection around how many of those groups have actually done anything? Have they, have they actually taken that statement and has it actually um, moved along the continuum of, of addressing DEI issues? And was there any particular reason why, why you decided to say DEI versus racial equity in DEI or READY as we are now calling it? Any, any, did you think DEI was more universally understood and being addressed in a particular yeah, way? Yeah, I think it, in 2019, that seemed like the most commonplace yeah. shorthand. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that the language is continually evolving, uh, which is a good thing. It, um, but I, I do think that the terminology is evolving and DEI may not be uh, the term in 2022. I hear about Jedi. I hear about yes. ready, I, yes. you know, so. Right, and, and one of the things that we will say to, I mean, you know, organizations will come to us, they will say DEI or they'll say racial equity. And even when they say DEI, there's this concern that if we were talking about race, or if we were talking about any of the other, we won't talk about any other systems of oppression. When I said, absolutely, there's, you know, something called intersectionality. And, and so we would come in talking about DEI, we'll conduct the assessment, and it'll be clear that staff are really want to staff really want to talk about race, and the board may be talking about DEI, and so we we want to highlight that and respond accordingly in their their knowledge building opportunities, um, and so just to get everyone to understand, I think this other point that is whether you are approaching it from a, D, a DEI perspective or racial equity perspective, whatever it is, if we do not deal with race, as you well know, there will be no other equity. And we've got to deal with race. And that's why I really, I really so appreciate the name of this report and you know the play on words there. I just think it's it's critical to be as clear as we can about it, um, that we must address race before any other equity is going to really um, really be put in place. And so thank you for this work. It's really, really important. Uh, we'll have a link to it on the website. Uh, we're gonna take a short break. And when we come back, we're gonna talk about a few of our listener questions. We're back in a moment. Hi everyone, thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about 
your work in nonprofits, or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. That's mary at gatheringgroundpodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. And we're back. <laughs> so here's a question um, from our listener. And this really flows with what we were just talking about, Sean. Um, this is from Ray in Phoenix, Arizona. And, and Ray says, we're getting ready to attempt a third DEI process in four years. And my staff is understandably exhausted, particularly BIPOC staff. Leadership has changed over a couple of times in the recent future. It, uh, they say it's a long story that they won't get into. And each one thinks they can do it better. I'm the COO, the chief operating officer of the organization. So I don't have executive decision-making power. Do you have any thoughts about how to make sure folks are taken care of during this process that would not offend a new CEO of color? Hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, I think one of the things that we've been grappling with is we've been trying to move into this uh, sort of assessment building work is like, what's the frequency that an organization can handle in terms of going through an intensive process of like uncovering and airing the experience and concerns? Um, And you know, our advice has been, it should not be an annual thing, that there should be, a, you know, that you have to think in multi-year um, trajectories for these efforts. And if things are shifting direction, that doesn't have to be a crisis, um, but it it is an opportunity and a mandate for the people in senior leadership to manage the meaning of why we're making these course corrections. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of responding to this scenario and situation, I think that the opportunity is with a leader of color to express to this leader of color that the sense is that staff of color are uh, tired of, and somewhat exhausted or burned out by the equity or DEI efforts from the past. So there's an opportunity there to ensure that whatever happens next does not continue to deplete staff of color, right? Um, And, you know, I think a leader of color is going to understand that. Like we talked earlier about the burden of representation. And so if a new leader is coming in and they have that burden of representation and they're probably expressing that burden or their in their instinct to do something different is also tied to that burden of representation. So how can we have some sympathy and understanding for a person of color in a leadership role who feels like this is the thing that I have to get right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know how can we al- align staff of color and the leadership of color so that they're not at odds? Because I think that's the worst situation, and it's unfortunately a situation that I feel is becoming um, something I hear a fair amount about, where, you know, leaders of color come into organizations and then feel uh, undermined or criticized by staff of color for trying to either move in a direction or, you know, moving in a different direction. And I just think that figure out a way, way to 
express to this new leader what the what the experience and feelings are of staff of color is important uh, so that there can be alignment because that really should be um, should be a priority for the leader of color, obviously. Right, and to your point, how do you extend some empathy? How do you extend some grace? I, I mean, I've said that a lot. We've just got to extend grace to each other. Yeah. Um, we're all trying. I, I think people are really trying and in some cases just don't know and don't have anyone they can ask, frankly. Yeah. So absolutely uh, agree with that. And here's, here's one more question. Um, this is from Gregory in Miami. This may be a little bit of a basic question, but I'm starting my first job later this month as, as a CEO at a local nonprofit focusing on school equity in my county. I'm thrilled because I feel like I've been working toward this for a while, but getting ready for your first top leadership position, they have in quotes, isn't, isn't something that is covered in college. Again, something we were just talking about. I'm hoping that you might have some advice. How can I best prepare? What does a best case scenario um, transition into the organization look like? Is getting an executive coach worth it? And most importantly, what do I wear? Which I totally, I totally empathize with. Uh, so any advice for this new person? Because as you, you know, I, I'll just tell you this quickly. I was doing uh, an interview that I was covering out in uh, San Francisco and it was for VP of Advancement. It was for an organization that was white led. Um, it was an organization that um, had a fairly large LGBTQ um, staff and, um, the VP of Advancement, one of the candidates coming in, was also a, a man of color and, and LGBTQ. He came in dressed like he had stepped out of a fashion magazine, which is what I expected. Mm -hmm. What we heard was things are a lot, things are a lot more casual in, uh -huh. in San Francisco. And this gives the idea, this is what you know, we heard, that some of the staff thought that he was, uh, oh, I don't know for lack of a word, better word, bougie. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and wasn't gonna be with you know, the people, so to speak. And I said, let me just say how people of color are conditioned and socialized to show up in a job interview. If yeah. he had shown up any other way, I would have been surprised. And so just even understanding that kind of cultural difference because he was actually, in some cases, with some of the staff being penalized because yeah. of what he had worn to the interview, which, I was really surprised by that, but then I had to realize we're not in New York and we're not even, we're not in Chicago, we're in San Francisco. Yeah. And so understanding the culture of the organization and where you sit, I think is, is gonna be very important. What else would you offer to Gregory? Well, yeah, and I think the question that I have for Gregory is who, who in the organization does he, who either does he or could he build a relationship with to ask that question about what to wear? Like, you know, because I understand the stakes of that sort of first day presentation, you know, like it's all very important. Um, and it's important from the perspective of how people will perceive you. Um, but I also think that there's an opportunity to think through like, well, who could I, strategically build a relationship with and tap as having some wisdom and expertise to share with me, right? Like people like to feel needed. They like to be needed, right? Especially from uh, in terms of needed by the incoming director. I think I want to not minimize that there can be risks to not knowing things as the incoming director. So there's always a 
balancing act that is, you know, made more complicated when we're talking about differences in race and gender and sexuality. So I don't want to minimize those factors, but I do think there are ways to strategically uh, invite someone who you will be working with to give you a window into how what, what is the organization's culture. And an example of culture might be, what is it that people wear? And what might they expect me to wear as the executive leader? I would say in addition to that sort of relationship management side of things, I would say, yeah, having a coach is worth it. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it is, as we said earlier, it is something that we're seeing people of color go to as a strategy for having the support, particularly from someone from the outside of the organizational context who can be a sounding board, who can help to track some of the power plays that are going to be playing out in organizations, because we know that organizations are political spaces. Um, and it's useful to have someone who can have a lens that is not clouded by being in the system uh, and can really be a sounding board for how am I going to respond to these things that are coming up with a board member who I thought was in my corner and was really going to back me. But it seemed like after this one board meeting, I must have said something wrong. I don't know what I did wrong, but all of a sudden the board member is coming at me differently, right? Like, those are not the kind of conversations that you probably want to have with like your deputy inside of the organization. I think it's useful to have someone who is does who is outside and whose only stake is your success, um, who can provide some counsel, wise counsel. So I would say coaching is worthwhile. Absolutely. Everyone should have, I think, an external voice and external support that you can go to for all the reasons you've just outlined beautifully. I I very much agree with that. Um, well, Sean, it, it always flies by, um, but so happy that um, we had a chance to talk about this new report. Um, anything about when we might see the assessment? When might we have your assessment? Uh, we're looking at 2022 at this point. Okay, it's, yes, it's yes been, I totally get that. Okay. Uh, you know, we're trying to do something that can go to scale, yeah. uh, that can involve some machine learning, um, so that it can be of value both for organizations, but also for the sector. Um, and it's just, it's, a, it's become a more complicated project than we originally thought. So yes, we're looking at 2022. In the meantime, though, I would encourage people to go to the buildingmovement.org website, go to racetolead.org to see all of the Race to Lead reports. Um, as I said, we'll be putting out another report based on the new, not new, but the 2019 race to lead data uh, to really try to unpack some of the uh, complications that executive leaders of color are facing as they try to lead organizations. Um, and we'll be resurveying in 2022. So there's, you know, a lot that's underway. And I think, you know, it's an exciting time for uh, BMP as an organization. And there's gonna be a lot more tools and resources coming out over the coming months and years. And we need all of them. I'm saying that on behalf of the nonprofits we work with, those who work with nonprofits, we need all of those resources. Again, go to racetolead.org or buildingmovement.org for just uh, an extraordinary um, uh, 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 list and uh, access to so many resources that will be helpful to you as you're navigating the nonprofit sector. Uh, we wanna thank Sean Thomas Brightfield for joining us again. 
uh, go to the website, share this data. It's really, really important data. It can act, absolutely have a, an impact on the, on the sector. And what we want to do is try to change this narrative. So the next time in 2022, I can't believe we're saying that already, you're going to be surveying again. Um, we hope to see some changes. We hope to see some different numbers and, and uh, all of you listening can likely have some impact there. So thank you again, Sean. Um, that, that takes us to our time for this episode of Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton. Until next time. We are so pleased to let you know that you can now find Gathering Ground on iTunes, in addition to SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, Breaker, and Radio Public, and at GatheringGroundPodcast.com. I'm Mary Morton, and this has been another episode of Gathering Ground.